The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. All right, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good to see you. Our scripture reading is in Isaiah 18. Still going to be in the book of judgment for a while, so hang on. The comfort will come, chapter 40, and uh, some along the way as well, promises of restoration. Isaiah chapter 18. Good to see you folks in the way back there. Very good. Okay, great. And Ashley, it's good to see you too. God bless you. Thank you for coming. Isaiah chapter 18. Woe to the land shadowed with buzzing wings, which is beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, which sends ambassadors by sea, even in vessels of reed on the waters, saying, Go, swift messengers, to a nation tall and of smooth skin, to a people terrible from their beginning onward, a nation powerful and treading down, whose land the rivers divide. All inhabitants of the world and dwellers of the, on the earth When he lifts up a banner on the mountains, you see it. And when he blows a trumpet, you hear it. For so the Lord said to me, I will take my rest and I will look from my dwelling place like clear heat in sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. For before the harvest, when the bud is perfect and the sour grape is ripening in the flower, he will both cut off the sprigs with pruning hooks and take away and cut down the branches. They will be left together for the mountain birds of prey and for the beasts of the earth. The birds of prey will summer on them and all the beasts of the earth will winter on them. In that time, a present will be brought to the Lord of hosts from a people tall and smooth as skin and from a people terrible from their beginning onward, a nation powerful and treading down whose land the rivers divide to the place of the name of the Lord of hosts to Mount Zion. Now that's speaking of a judgment against this land, Ethiopia, at the time historically, and then saying that in the future from that place there'll be tribute brought, uh, look at verse number 7 there, tribute brought to the Lord from that people. And so, speaking of the glorious time in the kingdom when the nations will bring their wealth into the land of Jerusalem, the land of Israel and the city of Jerusalem. I welcome you this morning to turn your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 for our exposition this morning, our study in God's Word. And I do mean that when I say I encourage you to turn your Bible there. I want you to see what I've seen, see what you can see uh, in the text of Scripture as it's written here often called the love chapter, chapter 13. We won't address the entire chapter today. My plan is to touch on the first seven verses out of the 13 that we find here. It sits between chapters 12 and 14, which I hope you're uh, in tune with the fact that those those chapters of 1 Corinthians deal with the subject matter of spiritual gifts. You see back in chapter 12, verse 1, Paul uses this somewhat of a formula when he says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, 
it is evident that the Corinthian church wrote to the apostle and asked him certain questions. Uh, starting in chapter 7, he deals with the issues of men and women and marriage and all of that, and then with uh, meat offered to idols in chapters 8, 9, and 10, and now spiritual gifts. And then he's going to address the matter of the resurrection and also a matter of uh, collecting finances for a special offering. That will be in chapter 16, somewhat down the road for us. But he's writing in response to these matters, and chapter 12 is clearly about spiritual gifts. Chapter 14 is, and many people miss the fact that chapter 13 also is because it's got some truth that applies so nicely to a much broader range of, of things when it speaks about love in the very exalted terms that it does. But it does get back to the matter of spiritual gifts and uh, the relationship of those to love, in the, uh, especially in the second half of the chapter. So we'll have to wait until next week, Lord willing, to get that connection fully fleshed out. But does not ma- uh, miss the fact, if you go back to chapter 12, verse 31, just let your eyes go back there on your Bible page, Uh, Paul said this, but earnestly desire the best gifts. And we gave an argument last time that this was a a command for the church as a whole to desire in its midst God's gifts to operate very well. Remember, it was not a a command for you to want to level up your gift to some other thing. God's already decided what gifts he's giving to you and he's not going to give you you know, a whole bunch of extra things and certainly not going to give you a gift of tongues, say, if you want that today. Uh, So we made that very clear. This is a corporate desire. God, send us people, uh, activate people already in our midst that have certain gifts that we need to operate the ministry most effectively. And that is uh, every pastor's desire, I'll tell you that, uh, across denominational lines and and all of this. uh, We hope as a clergy, broadly speaking, that the people of God will make use of the gifts of God uh, in the service of God for the multiplication of the people of God, okay? Uh, We hope for that because, not because of some greediness that, oh, well, our church will be bigger and better. You know, Paul said, we don't desire uh, this for our benefit, but for your benefit. It builds up the whole church, and you cannot... If you don't know the joy of being able to participate on a ministry team to accomplish some goal or to see people especially, see people come to Christ, if you don't know that joy, you just don't know real joy yet. You have to experience that. You have to participate in that. Pray for that. Be involved in that. In that and you will have the kind of joy that you just don't know. You, you don't understand without having had it in, in your life. And so... Uh, Paul is concerned about the work of the church and for the growth and edification of it. And so, as I'm suggesting, pastors today as well. But he goes on in verse 31 and says, And yet I show you a more excellent way. And that excellent way is the way of love. Chapter 13. What is that? What, an excellent way about what? Well, an excellent way to exercise your spiritual gifts. Uh, an ex- a, a way to operate in the midst of the church. Okay, uh, This message is primarily about that excellent way to use gifts of God. And then you'll see next time the abiding nature of love as opposed to the temporary gifts. Okay, So verses 1 to 3 are one subsection. 
And then four to seven are the second. You'll see that outlined there very clearly in the notes under Roman numerals one and two. And then I make some application under Roman numeral three. So what I've titled verses one to three as is this, the absence of love. Because three times the apostle says, but have not love. If you have this, but you don't have love. If you have this, but you don't have love. If you have that, but you don't have love. And so the passage is laid out, as I've tried to do in the notes here, I've I've kind of pictured it like there's a bunch of stuff that Paul postulates you could be doing, be involved in, but if you don't have love, then the value is nil. That's basically what he's saying here. Two kinds of religious works but they will amount to absolutely nothing if they are not done in and with love. Now, love is briefly defined that interest in others that cherishes them, that has a sympathetic concern and affection for them and and is desirous of their true well-being. So there's a feeling and an affection, a sympathy, an empathy, uh, a a desire for the true well-being of the people who are loved. Now, love toward God seeks to honor and obey Him. Uh, love toward fellow, our fellow man, our fellow people is not exactly the same. I mean, we, we, don't, we, we honor them, but we don't necessarily obey them. Okay? Uh, if you love me, keep my commandments, God says, and we will do that toward Him in our relationship with Him and also towards, towards others. So we'll speak more about what characterizes love in a little bit, but just briefly... I wanted to say that. So ponder these, these verses with me. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Uh, it's like metal banging on metal. Can you just think of that after you hear that for a while? It just gets on your nerves. You just can't, it just like gets to your bones and you can't take it anymore. That's what it is. It's, it has no value. Then he goes on and says, And though I have the gift of prophecy, something that the people in Corinth were very interested in chapter 12, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I had all that, and though I have all faith, and I think he reflects here on one of Jesus' teachings. You know, if you have just faith as a mustard seed, you'd be able to say to this tree, you know, be plucked up and cast into the sea, or this mountain, be, you know, moved from here to there. Though you have all faith so that you could remove mountains, what a, what a measure of faith that would be. But if you don't have love, then you're nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, as a martyr, I understand, it profits me nothing. Think of the various actions that we have read about. And I've laid them out in the leftmost column of your notes there. Just look at those again. Things like speaking with all kinds of languages. I mean, imagine you could be able to speak with angels in their native tongue. That must be a very efficient language, I would think. A very beautiful language. A very expressive language. Whatever it is. Being a powerful proclaimer of God's truth. Another religious uh, act here. Knowing all revelation and having the gift of perfect faith. Imagine you have all these. 
and you're able to have God move even large masses of earth and you give everything that you have to the poor and you submit to becoming a martyr for God. These are tremendous, tremendous actions, religious works. Now, not all of these are possible today. We can't have all revelation or all knowledge or speak in the tongues of men and angels. Those things have passed. The time for them has passed. But hypothetically, let's just suppose the possibility of them. Think of that. The greatest works that you can imagine, and yet without love, eh, meh, they're nothing. Now, there are some other implications to this basic proposition that we can explore. One is that if these works are to be truly good works, now you would look at them and say, wow, that's amazing, that's really good. That's great. But if, them, if they are to be truly good, <clears throat> they must be done in love. They must be done in love. And so any good work that you say to do has to be done in love. You can do very nice things, but if you do them with a rotten attitude or only a selfish concern, uh, it doesn't have any benefit. Now we're going to see just the nature of the... There's kind of a threefold nature of benefit that could... Could be here. We'll look at that in just a moment. But we're able to fit together from other scriptures that if we're to do truly good works, they have to be done in love toward God and toward our fellow people. Okay, we can't we can't do good towards our fellow people and hate God. We can't love God and, and just kind of grumble through the activities we need to do for God's creatures either. In fact, in first John four nineteen, God loved us first, so we love him. So This love that we're talking about has to come from God uh, at the beginning. And how does it come to us? Well, Romans 5.5 says, God's love has been poured out, shed abroad. It's been just lavished upon us in Christ. And that's how we can have it, so we can exercise it toward God and others. Therefore, good works are those works. Here's a definition for you. Good works are those works done in faith in obedience to God, but also out of love for God and love for others. Love for God, love for others. Word in, Not in word, but in deed, in truth. Okay. Now, um, why did I say that good works have to be also done in faith? That's not mentioned here, but if you look at Romans 14.23 with me, it says whatever's not of faith is sin. So uh, if you do a good work, so, so to speak, but not in faith toward God, then it's not really a good work. Yeah, you can do something good and it turns out to be something bad. It's an odd. It's kind of odd, you might think. You know, how can the same act be that way? Well, because there's a, 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 a value, a motivation behind that that is important to us. So many a good work has been spoiled by not only a lack of faith and a lack of obedience to God, but also a lack of love. And that is what Paul is saying to the Corinthians in maybe not so many words, but he's saying, look, you guys are exercising these gifts and thinking about using them in the church all about yourself. It's not about the edification of the body. You, you want better gifts and, and you have this issue with people that don't have the gifts you have and it, they have the gifts you don't have and all these problems. It's not out of love that you're operating. You need to... Uh, up the level here 
in terms of the operation of these gifts. Now, we can also think about these gifts in terms of the right-hand column. So we looked at the kind of tremendous nature of the gifts, but now look at the right-hand side. After he says, if you don't have love, I mean, look, you become a, a sounding brass, a clanging cymbal. You are nothing, and it profits you nothing. A person who exercises tremendous religious gifts, evident, evidently tremendous gifts, but does not have love for the people to whom he ministers, becomes almost like an annoyance. You know what I mean? Somebody Just think of a tremendous orator who preaches the Bible, but he has no care for the people to whom he speaks. What is that? His, his speaking gets kind of loud and grates on the nerves after a while. It's not entertaining or helpful. You see if there's a hypocrisy there, it just grates on your nerves. That's the clanging symbol. But there's also a person who uses other excellent gifts but has no love for God or his church family. He, he himself, it says, what does it say? Look at that. Where is that at? Chapter 13, verse number 2 at the end. He can do all those things and himself be nothing. If I do all that, I am nothing. So not only do I have, you can have a negative effect on others because you're a sounding brass, a clanging cymbal. They just want you to be quiet. But also, he says, I, can, I might be nothing. If I don't have love, I will be nothing. Not only will he not truly profit others, but he also will not please God properly and he himself will be evaluated as a zero. And then finally, the final outcome is at the end of verse number 3, if I do these wonderful works but have not love, look at the end of verse 3, it profits me nothing. So a person maybe gives everything even to the point of martyrdom will not receive any profit, which I take as eternal reward. Eternal reward. It won't profit you anything. You'll be... If you're truly born again, you'd be saved, yet so as what? Through fire, all of those good works that weren't really good will be burned up and they won't account for anything. In sum, the no love effect on others is on others, it's on yourself in, in eternity. All of it's zero. Zero, zero, zero. Nada. Zip. There's no value to those exercises without love. You can seek all of the wonderful gifts you want. You can seek the places of prominence, the places of service that everybody recognizes or notices. Uh, you can uh, be the most prominent thing in the, play, in the place, in the home, in the church or whatever, but if you're not loving others, then it doesn't do much. It doesn't do anything. So stop to think. This is our challenge this morning. Stop to think if you really exercise Love toward your fellow Christians. I'm talking to myself here as well. And my thought here includes this notion that an occasional moment of prayer or pity for another person, that's not, that's not real Christian love. The human world does that. Okay? Regular old humans. I mean, it's like the Lord said, if you, you know, pat people on the back who pat you on the back, like what... How's that different than the Gentiles? It's nothing. People do that. I mean, in, in fact, it gets to be sickening how people have banquets and 
you know, in politics, and they're talking about how wonderful each other is or are, and, and it doesn't mean anything. It's just so many words, empty talk, hot air. So occasionally being having pity on someone is, is nothing more than the world does. Curiously asking how people, how somebody's doing, uh, not for the sake of them, but for the sake of your desire for knowledge, is not love. Do you really have love for your fellow brothers and sisters? How do you demonstrate that love? How is it, how is it known to them that you love them? Is it, is it known? Or is it this kind of uh, under, how can I say, behind the scenes, hidden, unknown Love, that's not really what we're talking about here. All of this answers the need of the Corinthian church. They had, what did they have? Think of chapters 1 to 4. They had divisions in the church. Is that loving? There were people who had the inferiority complex. You know, look, I don't have this certain gift, so I'm, you know, I'm worthless. I don't belong. I don't fit. There's others with a superiority complex about what gift they had. And they say, look, we don't need these people. At least leave them behind. They're just a drag on the weight on the progress of the church. Um, all kinds of other problems. They had lawsuits. They had immorality. They had problems with meat offered to idols. They had you know, false doctrine in the church about the resurrection of Christ. They didn't know how to handle some of their offerings. Just all kinds of issues. Love would help to fix all of those things. Love is the more excellent way of chapter 12, verse 31. Not exercising their gifts for self-promotion. Not, uh, you, know, e- you know, even if they could accomplish those wonderful things, so to speak, in their deeds, it was just not going to be worthwhile. Now, that, that's really the point of verses 1 to 3. It's kind of easy, but if you dig in a little bit, you can find a few of those implications to that main proposition. No love, nothing. But now we move on to verses 4 through 7. And for this section, you don't have this in your notes, but I have an additional handout, two pages. It's available on the website if you want to get it. It's called, What is Love? And that handout goes through all of these things that I have on page 3. And, yeah, on page 3, those are 15 characteristics or qualities or traits of divine love that God wants to work in us as believers. And so I've given a, kind of a brief definition in the notes you have with your bullets in there, but then I've unpacked it a little bit more in this longer handout. So I'm going to be referring to both back and forth as I go through this with you for the next few moments. And you can look at that second handout if you want on the uh, church website. It's on the documents page there where all the bulletins and sermon notes are uh, week by week. Um, which has been actually almost a year now that we've been putting them there, which is kind of neat. Uh, little by little, that's growing as a resource for folks. So, Now, we've given a brief definition already for love. Remember, it's that, that, that affection, sympathy that's desirous for the good of others, obviously for the honor of God. And love is one of those things, you know, that when you say, if somebody says to you, what is love? You say, well... I don't know exactly how to define it, but I know it when I feel it, you know. Um, Now, of course, that feeling in the days of youth is likely some species of infatuation that has not deepened to, you know, true, uh, real deep human love, much less the Christian dimensions of love. 
And love is far more than a feeling, as you're well aware. It's a character trait. Some say it's a decision. You know, it involves the volition. It's not just a decision, but it involves the volition to say, I'm, I'm, I'm loving that person. I'm going to love that person, that, that church, whatever. Uh, and, you know, it's part of the fruit that the Spirit bears in the life of a Christian. Remember, the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love. That's the first one on the list. Uh, look at Ephesians chapter 5 and verse number 2. Just a few pages forward in your Bible, Ephesians 5, verse number 2. Uh, I'll start in verse 1. It says, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us. Boy, those little words, as. That's a comparative, meaning you love like He loved. You love as much as He loved. And then you scratch your head and say, oh, how, can I, how can I measure up to that? Well, good luck. No, not good luck. God will work in you to produce that by and by. Not immediately. Of course, we're going to fall short of that. But, you know, hopefully, hopefully when I fall short of my love toward you, you don't at that moment fall short in your love toward me. And you fall short in your love toward me. Maybe at that moment I don't fall short in my love toward you. And we cover, we cover each other's uh, foibles or failures. You know what I'm saying? And, and when we're both loving, then everything's running along and humming smoothly. Yes. So, uh, the fruit of the Spirit. Now, I've, I've patterned my notes here after the initial phrasing of these qualities. And then I've added other uh, English translations in to hopefully help you see your, your translation is probably represented here in some form or fashion. And then I've put some definitions after these things. And I'll try to give some examples uh, along the way. Okay, so let me just read 4 through 7 for you, and then we'll walk through these. Uh, and, and you know what? Just be, uh, bear with me, because whenever there's a list of things like this, that the Apostle Paul's fond of these things. Every book or so, he has a, a list or two. And this one... I, I was reading and I thought, well, that's not too bad. And then I listed them all out and I said, 15? I mean, you know, a good sermon has three points in a poem. But 15, I mean, you know, come on. This is tough. So there's a lot here. Uh, it says in verse 4, Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. We'll stop there. Wonderfully, verse 8, though, opens this way. Love never fails. I think that could, could kind of close this section out, but it actually functions very well to open the next section because it's all about the failure of certain gifts or the cessation of them versus love, which always continues. So now think of, of these one by one. So the first one is that love suffers long. And maybe I should say, although I'm kind of drawing ahead my application here, even though we said love is not just a feeling, you might ask yourself this question when you're considering your own conduct. Do I feel patient towards 
person X, my spouse, my child, my pastor, my church member, my mother or father? Do I feel patient toward them? Do I feel proud or jealous or whatever right now? That diagnostic question, I hope, will help you to determine if you're acting out of love or the opposite of love. And of course, the opposite of love, which is that others-oriented mindset, would be what? What's the opposite of that? Self. Yeah, right, self. Now, um, hatred is a manifestation of self, isn't it? Yeah, it's about me and how better I am than them, whoever that is that I hate. And I want to, I mean, the Lord told us hatred is akin to murder. And uh, I'll just say, for our sake and also for the sake of anybody that would find us online, there's been an awful lot of hatred running around these days. An awful lot of hatred. Right? Whether you think you're right or know you're right, there's no excuse for hating other people. Whether you hate them on the left or you hate them on the right, politically, okay? No hate, okay? No hate. Hate is not a Christian virtue. It's a vice. And there's been far too much of that going around. So, and that's just an expression of self. I'm better. I know better. You're an idiot. You know, am I supposed to say that when I preach? <laughs> yeah. You know, we are adults here, as our brother says sometimes. And that's the thing. People really think like that. That's sad. So, Ask yourself, do I have these feelings, especially these, these negative ones that we're going to go through, and there's a bunch of them, and there's some positive ones, especially at the end, uh, four or five of them. But, you know, so although we kind of downplay the feeling, ask yourself, am I feeling patient right now towards so-and-so? And that's what this is, suffering long or being patient. Do you feel that way toward your spouse? You know, this patience remains tranquil when waiting for whatever, and bears up under provocation without complaint. Bears up under provocation without complaint. So all of you spouses out there, you know what I'm talking about. Because the closer you live with somebody, the more they can provoke you, right? They know your buttons, the press. And so love suffers long. You know, even if your spouse falls into one of their old patterns of behavior and is irritating you, okay, I, you, you see what's going on, right? And God is giving you a test to see how you're going to handle it. You know, God gave Abraham a promise. You know, your, your descendants will be as the stars, the sand of the seashore. And, and Abraham, of course, initially was like, wow, this, I, I can count my descendants on on zero fingers, you know, it's not coming here. Um, but eventually God's promise did come to pass. And it says in Hebrews 6.15, And so after Abraham had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Patiently endured and he obtained the promise. In James chapter 5, there's a couple of verses in 7 and 8 that mention endurance. First Thessalonians chapter 5, We exhort you, brothers, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient, with all people. And the Lord is the great model for this. Second Peter 3.9, what does it say? The Lord is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish. You know how long-suffering that is? Woo! We didn't deserve any of that. 
No, not even one second of that long suffering. But he, he did. He suffered long, waited. The Bible says in verse number four that love is not only patient, but it's also kind. It's also kind. It means it's merciful. Kind and merciful. You kind of know what kindness is, don't you? Versus, versus uh, unkindness. It's interesting because this is the only time this word is used in the New Testament. It's almost like love is a sort of a unique thing. Sort of a unique thing. It's kind. It's merciful. Thirdly, love does not envy. It's not jealous of other uh, people. It's, it, does, it has no negative feelings over the success of other people. Okay, So love has a favorable feeling toward people with success or without success. Paramount example of this envy, Joseph's brothers became envious and sold him into slavery. And Acts chapter 17, this is in Thessalonica, in fact, the Jews, it says, were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some evil men from the marketplace. They were envious of Paul because here, here this guy comes in from out of town and all of a sudden he's got a, an instant following. You know, his follower count just went way up. And they're like, hey, what's going on with us? And so they were envious of him. And another example, I'll turn, you don't have to, but in James chapter 4, it says, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You're trying to get things through your own mechanism. You're trying to get things that you want but that are bad desires. That's not love, James tells us. That's where fights come from. That's where, listen, again, marital counseling 101 here, okay? Where do the fights come that you have with your spouse or with your parents or with your children? Well, the desires for pleasure that war in your members. Your own lusts. It's not like they come from God, these conflicts. They come from something else. All right, number four. Are we on number four? Yes. Uh, love, it says, does not parade itself. Does not parade itself. Is not uh, boastful or uh, does not brag. It does not heap praise upon oneself. And this is related to the next one, which says love is not puffed up. It's not proud or arrogant. <clears throat> so love doesn't seek to uh, heap praise upon myself, nor does it allow me to think highly, too highly of myself. It does not have an exaggerated self-view, this love of God, and nor does it promote that outwardly. Okay, So you might ask, and this is my answer to this question, uh, when it says it does not parade itself and is not, is not puffed up, don't those say the same thing? Well, very similar things, but I think one is internal, the puffing up, looking at myself better than I am, and the other is external, making other people think that I'm something else, that I'm something great. Those are the two ideas there. Now, when we say love does not puff ourselves up. Let me just share with you a couple of verses from 1 Corinthians that demonstrate that this 
very thing was a severe problem in the church in Corinth. Okay, Paul, Paul is writing here. He's not writing something that's unapplicable, inapplicable to these people. I mean, he's actually kind of hitting them where it hurts. He's really giving it to them. Look at 1 Corinthians 4, 6. Now these things, brothers, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against another. Remember this whole thing about divisions? You know, I follow Paul. Well, I like Paul. I like Apollos. His oratory is far better. You know, or I follow Christ, puffed up for one against another. Chapter 4, 18. Now some of you are puffed up as though I were not coming to you. Or 1 Corinthians 5, 2. They had immorality in the church and they were proud of it. Listen to 5, 2. It says, and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. You know, the, the, great, the great irony of people today in churches who believe that it's not only okay, but morally superior to support, for example, homosexuality in the church. That's what this is. I mean, not, not exactly this case of this fellow, but I'm saying that idea is right here. They, have, they call sin into their midst and they're puffed up and say, look at how great we are. Look at how accepting we are. Look at how wonderful we are. The irony of that is that pride is the very thing that is humiliation. It's not pleasing to God. And that's because it's not loving. What does it do to the people who you say, yeah, come on in. You're fine. Everything's fine. God loves everybody without this distinction about sin. Doesn't call us out of sin. Doesn't call us to repentance. That's not loving. That's eternally deadly. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse number 1. The Bible says, Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. What does knowledge do? Puffs up. Puffs up. But love edifies. You see how the church in Corinth was having a very serious problem with their love? They're being puffed up. Yeah, they're, they have a ways to go. Paul's working with them. So it's not puffed up. It does not parade itself. Uh, number six, I think, on our list here, it does not behave rudely or improperly or dishonorably toward others. It's not given to disgraceful, uh, indecent behavior. You know, sometimes people, I pray I don't do this. Help me not to do this, but perhaps you, uh, you know, would say the same thing. Sometimes you act, you do something towards somebody, they, they think, man, that's kind of rude. Maybe there's a misunderstanding. Maybe there's a shortcoming on your part. You're distracted by something. You're whatever it is. Uh, you know, or, or you come from a different culture. I mean, sometimes some, some different cultures are more direct than we are. And they just say, you know, I, I better not say anything because it'll just be too crazy. But... You know, they'll just say something and you're like, woof, you know, but then you think, oh, well, they come from that country and that mindset and that's how they talk and, you know, it seems rude. So, you you know, when you go cross-culture, that's an, uh, an issue as well. But, you know, 
watch that rudeness. You know, sometimes it'd be good for us to think, you know, have I, anything that I've done maybe considered rude by other people? Maybe. Think about that. That's, that's not a mark of love, rudeness. That love does not behave dishonorably or improperly toward others. It's not given to indecent behavior. Love also does not seek its own. It's not uh, selfish. Um, speaking about Timothy, in the book of Philippians, in chapter 2, verse 20, Paul said this, I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state, for all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. There's an example of a young man, Timothy, who cares for others in a sincere way. His heart is, is in it. He loves those people Paul was sending to see the Philippians. So it's not selfish, this love. Love is not easily provoked or easily angered or irritable. It keeps the temperature down. It doesn't raise the temperature. Love, love is not one of those things that, you know, you've got to ratchet up the argument to the next level because you've got to win it. You know, you have to win the argument. I saw some advertisement for, a, I think it was a t-shirt that says, uh, I'm not arguing with you. I'm just explaining why I'm right. <laughs> you know? Yeah, there, there's something there. Uh, now, there's another kind of provoking that's actually a good kind of provoking. In Acts 17, Paul is in now, he moved from Thessalonica, uh, Berea, and now he's in Athens. And in Athens... It says, while Paul waited for his, his ministry companions at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was wholly given over to idolatry. Provoked. So there's some time in which you have to do something about an evil that is before you. You, know, you say, well, you could use this, what I'm saying is as an excuse. Well, I'm not going to be provoked. I'll just let that evil go on. I'm not going to be provoked. I'm not going to be provoked. No, but when are you going to actually, you know, in love, yes, respond to, say, the person that's living in sin or tell the people that are, that are you know, on the broad road to destruction that they're on that road? Well, let's carry on. What else do we have? Love is not provoked. Uh, it thinks no evil. It keeps no record of wrongs. I love that translation. I think that is a good translation. But I think, I think thinking no evil, you could extend it a little more broadly than that. Love does not let your mind dwell on bad things. Okay, if, you're, if you love a person, uh, this is a great reminder to clear out bad thoughts about other people. So-and-so did this to me and I'm upset about that. And I'm gonna, what I'm going to counsel you here is try your best to let love cover those things, wash them off, wash them away, cover a multitude of sins. Uh, don't keep a record of wrongs. You know, I mean, if God kept a record of wrongs that you've done, I'll use the words of, I think, the psalmist, who could stand? Who could stand? Yeah, nobody. So... Thank God that He forgives and forgets our sins. He doesn't hold them against us. Love also does not rejoice in iniquity. 
It takes no delight in evil or wrongdoing or, or injustice. Back to that idea of love keeping no record of wrongs. Remember Paul talking to Philemon about Onesimus? And he says to Philemon, hey, listen, count him as you would count me. You know, put, put my goodness in his account and take whatever he's done and put that on my account and I will, I will repay. And Paul is really asking him ultimately, not, not, he's not really saying that he's planning to repay. He's saying, look, just forgive. Just let it go by. Forget the whole thing. Don't keep a record of this evil against this man. You know, he wasn't, in a sense, he wasn't really in his right mind. He, he was in darkness then. Now he's born again. You're receiving Onesimus back as a fine brother uh, in the Lord. Now back to the, the one we were just at. Love does not rejoice in iniquity. But there are people who, Psalm 140 says, uh, plan evil in their hearts. They lie on their beds at night and think, how can I get my next victim? How can I get my next victim? And I'm not talking just about people who sit there and say, you know, how am I going to rob the next purse from the little old lady that I can get, you know, this petty larceny kind of stuff. I'm talking about people in the global scale who think, how can we get who we want to get? And how can we get where we want to get? They plot evil on their beds, evil in their hearts. They continually gather, Psalm 140 says, for war. Love, it says, does, however, rejoice in the truth. John says in 2 John and 3 John also, I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in the truth. So I rejoice in that. That is a wonderful thing to see. When, when brothers come and testify of the truth that is in you just as you walk in the truth. Just a few more here before we come to the closure of our message. Love bears all things. Paul you know, was, a, was an apostle. And he had certain rights as an apostle. But in chapter 9 of this very letter in which we are looking at, he says, I have not used any of those things. Um, you know, we've not used this right, but we endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. What kinds of things did Paul endure? All kinds of, uh, just list them. Go to some of the places in 2 Corinthians and, and, and the book of Acts, you know, his beatings and all these things. He endured all these things. He endured poverty. He didn't take support from places where he was currently ministering because he didn't want to make, you know, have them think that he's a charlatan, that he's just in it for the money. So poverty, uh, sleeplessness, homelessness, all kinds of things he endured for the sake of the gospel because he didn't want to put any barriers in front of the reception of the gospel. The Bible also says here in 1 Corinthians 13 that love believes all things. You know, it trusts. Uh, it keeps confidential certain matters. It endures difficulties in its bearing of these things. It believes, it trusts. Paul is not affirming here gullibility. Don't hear that in the, in the word. But you have to kind of understand when the situation calls for you to, to bear and believe and trust and not then to be taken advantage of and be gullible about a certain situation. The line there is tough to apply sometimes. But love trusts and believes. Love hopes all things. It's forward-looking to the good things to come and it endures 
all things. It perseveres. Actually, there's about three here that talk about bearing, enduring, persevering, suffering long. You can see how these ideas kind of overlap one another. And so it's hard to you know, give like hermetically sealed compartmental definitions of each term here. It's a whole description of what love looks like in all of its colors and all of its you know, shapely form that it has in our lives. 2 Timothy 2.12 finally says, If we endure, we also will reign with Him. Now, where do you find these attributes most perfectly exemplified? Well, God is love, and so you're going to find them all there. Christ was the exemplification of God's love in human flesh, and the Spirit of God pours out His love in our hearts. So you find that love perfectly in the person of the triune God. Now think of these traits that we've talked about. I know it's hard to keep all 15 in mind, but maybe there's one or two that have really struck you today. Keep those in mind. Think of them in respect to your love for God. Do you love God? You know, and some of them may seem a little inapplicable. Like, you know, have you ever been envious of God? Love does not envy. Have you ever felt that feeling of God that you're you're envy envious of Him? Maybe not, but maybe you are selfish and rude toward God at times. When's the last time you approached prayer in a way that was not reverent before God? Do you rejoice in God's truth or do you boast about your own self? Do you hope in God and believe in Him or do you take joy sometimes in evil things? That's a way that we can evaluate our love for God. But then we can think about the characteristics of love with respect to our spouse. And this is a never-ending need for us. Every day, every week. This, this message here could be so applicable to us every, all the time. How, how do I exemplify these characteristics? Patience. Uh, no jealousy. Not parading myself. Not being puffed up. Not behaving rudely toward my husband or toward my wife. And recognize that when you do those things that are opposite of love toward your spouse... You're not only sinning against your spouse. Remember, you're sinning against God. That's a very serious matter. Think about these qualities of love with respect to your own parents, particularly if you're a young person, your parents are still alive. Think about how you deal with your parents. How about these traits with regard to your love for the church? How do these apply in your life? What do you have to... What, what do you think? Is God's Spirit speaking to you and saying, look, the way you're conducting yourself in the church or right now towards this person or whatever, is there anything where the Spirit of God is telling you, look, you need to kind of fix something? You need to make something right? Because you haven't demonstrated proper love toward that person or them or that situation? Love is also, another note here, is giving. It's giving. It's outward in its expression. But it can stray if it's not constrained by truth and holiness. Like I was saying earlier, you can be patient with somebody's sins, but you must call them to repent. Love protects others, yes, but it does not allow them to carry on into destructive activities. Love keeps no record of wrongs, but that doesn't mean that you cannot allow, that you must allow somebody to go down the wrong path. Okay? If you see a pattern of sin, 
you can see that and know it and remember it without holding a record of wrongs against a person. Does that make sense? How do you do that? That's a good trick. You know, but sometimes you have to say, look, you've been, you've been doing this kind of behavior for a while. And they could immediately come back and say, oh, you're keeping a record of wrongs. No, I'm not holding it against you. I'm saying there's something going on in your life. It's been going on for a while and it's caused you to your, your spiritual life to deflate or to go downhill and it's time to pick it back up. It's time to get out of that pattern of, of thought and behavior. Now, let's emphasize finally that it's the spiritual gifts and their exercise that Paul wants us to really get this love to, to operate with. Love is a preventative for the ills that the Corinthian church was experiencing. It, the, the, those, that lack of love. Well, let me say it this way. Love is, is a characteristic that prevents us from acting out in ways that are dishonoring to God. It prevents us from becoming angry when somebody does fall short of love and and, and wrongs us in some way. Love prevents the church from having factions and splits. It promotes holiness and growth in the church. It prevents us from being a noisy annoyance, like a clanging cymbal. It prevents us from amounting to nothing. And love, finally, prevents us from receiving a zero reward from God at the judgment seat of Christ. If we exercise our gifts in love, then we will have a good and well done statement from our Lord in the Bema seat. And that's what we want, isn't it, after all? And so may God be pleased to give us a greater measure of love for Him and also for our fellow believers in Christ Jesus. Love is all of these things. Let us pray. Lord, thank You for, for loving us. Thank You for Your kindness. I pray that these moments that we have shared in the Word will bring a level of, of not only knowledge, but also conviction and change in whatever way we need so that our hearts will be right before You, that our lives will be marked by that others-oriented love that diminuates ourselves and elevates others in our own estimation and gives them the benefit of the doubt and bears with them long and, 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 and is patient and kind and does not behave rudely and is merciful and does not rejoice in iniquity, does not keep a record of wrongs. In all of these things that we looked at, may it truly be the case that Fellowship Bible Church is marked by love for God and for others. In Jesus' name, Amen.